And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would help me as I teach your word this morning. Lord, my um, opinions are not what's needed, God. It's your word that we need, and your word is sufficient. And so I I pray that you would help me to rightly divide it and uh, to apply it to our lives. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, just like the text calls for. Help us to humbly listen to what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, this passage is directed right towards your church, and it is a very applicable and much-needed word for us this morning. And God, I pray for those in the room that don't know you, Jesus, for those that are not born again, that today as they hear your word proclaimed, as they hear the gospel, that you would do the miracle of giving spiritual sight, that they would see that Jesus You are the treasure hidden in the field. You are worth selling everything that we own to have, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that you would um, just grant faith leading to eternal life this morning. Uh, Be with us now, Lord, as we uh, study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So, uh, believe it or not, I played a lot of basketball in junior high or high school. Um, I played organized basketball, and we also spent hours and hours during the summers playing at the Y. We'd play pickup games, uh, you know, all day during the summer times. And um, you may not be able to tell from way back there in your pews, but I'm not the tallest guy in the room. So I was at an automatic disadvantage playing basketball because I was typically the shortest guy uh, on the court. And the only way that I could really get playing time at all is if I played harder than everybody else. And so I kind of just took this persona upon myself that I was going to outwork every single person on the floor, and that's just how I approached sports in general, because it was the only way that I could survive. 
Uh, I, you would never mistake me for a future MVP of, of any league, of any sport, uh, especially basketball. Uh, but I did win the Hustle Award two years in a row <laughs> in school. It's a real award. It was a team award, and it was given to the person that basically laid it out on the floor and, uh, and played harder than everybody else. And I won that award two years in a, in a row. Those are the only two trophies on my shelf. I don't actually still have them. I should have kept them. I would have brought them as a prop maybe for this illustration, but don't have them. But, you know, that's, that's just how I approach sports because I had to. I knew that I was at a size disadvantage. But unfortunately, I didn't approach my walk with Jesus like that. I wouldn't have said so at the time, but at best, uh, up until the age of 24, I was a lukewarm Christian. Really, I was a nominal Christian. I said the right things. I would have told you, yes, the Bible is God's word. Yes, Jesus is the only way to salvation. If they would have had Facebook back then, I would have posted on Easter, He is risen! But when it came down to it, I definitely was not giving Jesus 100% of my affection. By God's grace, things have changed since then. God has graciously transformed my life and He has rescued me from the deception and the hypocrisy of nominal Christianity, the only explanation for that is His grace. There are many other friends and past friends that I have, people I grew up with in church who um, were in the same boat as I am and they're still not walking with the Lord today. Some of them have abandoned Christianity altogether and for some reason God spared me. Uh, It's not because of anything in me, it's simply because of His grace. And my prayer this morning is that God will use this message to spare some of you too. And this morning we're looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea. And this is the last of the seven letters from Jesus to the churches in Revelation. And it's probably the most urgent and the most relevant to us of all of them. The main point of the message this morning is that Jesus is disgusted by lukewarm Christianity but he is delighted when we treasure him above all things. Jesus is disgusted by lukewarm Christianity, but he is delighted when we treasure him above all things. What we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this passage by looking at two things, really. We're going to look at Jesus' indignation and Jesus' invitation. In other words, What is lukewarmness and why is Jesus' righteous anger or indignation aroused by it? And then what is Jesus' gracious invitation to lukewarm churches and Christians? The passage begins, Jesus begins his rebuke of the church in Laodicea by saying, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, or I would rather that you would either be cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I want to paint a picture here of what the situation was uh, in Laodicea and then try to help us see just how relevant it is for us today and how much we have in common uh, with the church in Laodicea. This was a church that for all intents and purposes appeared blessed and highly favored by God. They had a flourishing banking industry in the city of Laodicea, so they did not hurt for money. It was considered a wealthy city. Uh, The city also had a clothing industry where they produced 
uh, fine uh, garments made out of fine black wool. So they were considered a very fashionable city. And they had a medical school that was renowned for producing healing ointments for the eyes and for the ears. In other words, they were wealthy and healthy. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's also noteworthy that in this letter, there's no persecution mentioned like the church in Pergamum experienced. And there's no poverty mentioned like the church in Smyrna experienced. And there's really no rampant false teaching mentioned in this letter either like the church in Thyatira. And yet, this is the only letter of the seven churches in which Jesus finds nothing to commend. Ironically, his most urgent and serious rebuke is directed towards this church that appeared so safe and secure on the outside. Although they appeared well off, it was actually their prosperity that was their snare. It made them complacent and self-sufficient. They felt secure and self-sufficient because of, of their wealth and because of their health. And Jesus says to them, essentially, you think that you're well off, but your true condition is actually like your water source, not like your wealth. You see, it was well documented that Laodicea did not have its own water source. So it depended on the nearby cities of Hierapolis and Colossae for their water. A Hierapolis had a, a hot water source. They had uh, hot water that bubbled up from the ground. And Colossae had a cold water source. And so the city of Laodicea would get their water either from Colossae or Hierapolis. But the problem is that that water would have to travel to Laodicea via aqueducts. And by the time that it arrived in the city, it was no longer hot and it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And not to mention, it was dirty. Right? They didn't have like the, the greatest water filtration systems back in the day. So you had lukewarm, dirty water. In other words, you had water that you take a sip of it and it make you want to spit it out. The water was no longer good for medicinal purposes like the hot water, and it was no longer refreshing like the cold water. It was poor quality and it was useless. And the point that Jesus is making here to the church in Laodicea is that a divided faith, a lukewarm faith, is useless just like their lukewarm water. It's neither cold nor hot. This kind of hypocrisy literally makes Jesus sick. He can't tolerate it. He said, because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're, you will only take a swig of curdled, expired milk from the carton one time. If you've ever done it, you know that you'll never do it again because you're always going to check. One time I went out into the fridge and I got some chocolate milk out and I was all ready to have myself some chocolate milk. Took a swig of it and spewed it all out into the sink. I'll never make that same mistake again. That's the way that Jesus says he feels about lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm Christianity is professing to trust and treasure Jesus while placing other things before him. Marshall Siegel is a pastor and an author, and he said that the lukewarm attempt to stay Christian enough to avoid hell, but spend most of their time, money, and attention trying to find some heaven here on earth. It's noteworthy, isn't it, that Jesus' greatest indignation during his ministry on the earth and in the, in the Gospels was reserved for the Pharisees. 
those who claimed to love and honor God, but put themselves first, relied on themselves. Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs that appeared clean on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. That was the spiritual condition of the church in Laodicea. They were spiritually dead on the inside, and the real danger is that they were blind to it. Now look at verse 17. For you say, that the Laodiceans said, I'm rich, I, I have prospered, I don't need anything. And Jesus says, you don't realize that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They thought the opposite. Because of their outward prosperity, this church had forgotten their need for Jesus. In their pride, they thought that they were in control. But in reality, they were in a state of destitution. And worse still, they were blind to it. You know, a lukewarm Christian doesn't walk around believing that they're a hypocrite. Nobody walks around going, yep, I know I'm a hypocrite. Hypocrite right here. Everything I'm saying, I don't really mean I'm just blowing smoke. Nobody actually does that, right? Like, lukewarm Christianity by its very nature is self-deceptive. You don't realize that you're in it unless God graciously wakes you up and opens your eyes. So, what I don't want all of us to do in this morning is just sit here and automatically go, well, this doesn't apply to me, because it very well might. Because by its very nature, lukewarm Christianity is self-deceptive. That's what makes it so perilous. And it's striking to me how prophetic this passage is for the church in America today. Many Christians, professing Christians, are deceived. They think that God will be pleased with a half-hearted devotion. They have been lulled into a false sense of security by their health and wealth. And make no mistake, if you live in America, you are healthy and wealthy relatively to the rest of the world. We have access to the greatest medicine in the world. Even the poorest person in this room relative to the rest of the population of the world is very well off. Many professing Christians in America think, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I don't need anything. But the reality is that there are many whose true spiritual condition is poor. I think that could be said for the church in America as a whole, and I think that tragically it can be said of multitudes of professing Christians in our country. There are many people, and likely some here in this room, who believe that they need nothing, who believe that a profession in faith, of faith in Jesus and church attendance and serving at charity events and putting a little bit of money in the offering plate on Sundays is sufficient and pleasing to God. But in the meantime, their affections are divided. Their devotion is divided. They pay lip service to trusting and treasuring God above everything else. But in reality and in practice, they are trusting in their own wisdom and in their own resources. God is not pleased with lukewarm worship. He detests it. I mean, listen to God's word in Isaiah 1, 12 to 15. He said this to the people of Judah, but it applies today. He said, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So what the Lord is telling His people there is that He can't stand lukewarm worship. He can't stand a, a, a posturing where we come and we go through the motions of worship. Meanwhile, our hearts are devoted to other things and placing other gods before Him. God is not pleased by lukewarm worship. It makes Jesus indignant because it's insincere and it's prideful. It belittles the glory of God. But despite its prevalence, nevertheless, Jesus offers and extends an amazing and gracious invitation in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Rather than trusting in their own wealth and their healing abilities, Jesus invited the church in Laodicea to receive true wealth and healing from Him. Instead of perishable wealth that was going to pass away, Jesus invites us to receive from Him treasure in heaven that will not pass away, this gold refined by fire. Instead of focusing on improving our outward appearance in the eyes of the world, Jesus invites us to clothe ourselves with the white garments of His righteousness that clothes our sin and our shame. And instead of focusing on physical healing and putting our trust in medicine, Jesus invites us to receive true spiritual healing and spiritual sight from Him. Here's the thing, though. Jesus invites us to buy these things from Him, but these are things that we could never afford. We could never afford to purchase the righteousness of Jesus. We haven't earned that. We could never afford to purchase the, the, the eternal riches of heaven, treasure in heaven. We could never afford to purchase the ability to be able to have our spiritual eyes opened. We can't do anything to earn these things. In fact, the only thing that we've earned is condemnation and death. We have all dishonored God. It's actually quite amazing how gracious Jesus' invitation is to us and to the church in Laodicea. And yet, Jesus died for sinners, including self-righteous, arrogant, wealthy ones. It's difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but with God, all things are possible. Though we could never afford to purchase salvation or spiritual riches from Jesus, He offers it to us as a gift. And this is possible because Jesus died on the cross for sinners in our place. 
And then three days later, Jesus rose again, defeating death. And by faith in Him alone, you can be forgiven and you can receive the white garments of His perfect and spotless righteousness. So responding to Jesus' invitation starts by recognizing our desperate need for Jesus once again. Or maybe for the first time. It means repenting of prideful self-reliance and putting Christ as the center of our lives, believing that in Him there is true wealth and healing. The self-reliance of lukewarm Christianity is so tragic because it trades true riches and blessings for a mirage, for a delusion. I want to quote Marshall Siegel again. He says, The self-reliant have no idea how much they sacrifice to preserve their pride. As they cling to their false sense of control, they forfeit the sovereign help of heaven. They surrender the merciful and miraculous opportunity to finally and fully see. They lose Jesus because they won't be served by Jesus. Jesus invites us this morning to buy from him true treasure in heaven, to receive from him the white garments of his perfect and spotless righteousness, to allow him to anoint our eyes so that we can see, and the cost is free. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. This is, this is the invitation. The Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, that's us, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Don't miss this invitation this morning. This is a stunning invitation from Jesus to a people who deserve nothing but condemnation. This is a stunning invitation from Jesus to lukewarm Christians. Maybe that's you this morning and you're sitting in the pew and you know that you've had a half-hearted devotion to Jesus maybe your entire life. That Jesus has never really been on the throne of your life. That you've always paid lip service to Him, but you've also kind of just wanted to stay in control and you've relied on yourself. And despite the hypocrisy of this, despite how much it disgusts Jesus, that yes, it's true, He wants to spew that kind of faith out of His mouth, and yet He is compassionate and merciful, and He's inviting you, a sinner, to come to Him for free. And to come and buy and eat without price, to drink of living waters, to clothe your sin with the white garments of His righteousness. This gift is given freely to everyone who recognizes their desperate need and comes to Him. That's really all you have to do, is you have to recognize just how impoverished you are spiritually. Instead of living in this self-deception that because I have money and because I have health, and because I have a 401k or whatever it is, that I'm safe. That is a false sense of security. Remember, this church was in the most danger of all the seven churches. Even more than the church in Pergamum, whom Jesus told, Satan is about to throw some of you into prison for ten days. Laodicea was in more danger than they were. What does that say about the church in America? What does that say about our precarious situation? 
I am afraid that while we consider ourselves blessed and highly favored, a Christian nation, people blessed by God, that if we take this wealth that God has blessed us with and we make a God out of it, it will consume us and it will destroy us. While this urgent appeal from Jesus may sound hard, and it's actually love that drives Jesus to speak this way, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I'm convinced that we desperately need to be brought to repentance in America, and that starts individually in our own hearts. Judgment begins at the, at the household of God, not by thinking about how this applies to all those people up there. If God's people will turn away from lukewarm Christianity and they will wholeheartedly devote themselves to knowing Him and making Him known, we will bear fruit. And that fruit will bring, more, will bring glory to God and it will result in more unbelievers believing the gospel that we proclaim and being added to the church. But right now, I fear that we resemble the church in Laodicea more than anything. So the call this morning is to be zealous and repent. But what does it look like to repent of lukewarm Christianity? Well, it means putting away anything that you are trusting in or treasuring more than Jesus. And the way to identify these things is to look at where our money and our time are going. I want to talk about those two things briefly because I think they're very applicable. Let's talk about money for a second. Let me ask you a question. Do your spending patterns reflect that you prioritize the glory of God and the expansion of His kingdom or your own comfort and security? Do your spending patterns reflect that you prioritize the glory of God and the expansion of His kingdom or your own comfort and security? The Laodiceans thought that accumulating wealth was a sign of God's favor but it actually became a snare to them because they trusted in it. God blesses us with money. Everything that we have comes from God. It's a, it's a gift from above. But if money is not stewarded rightly, as I said earlier, it will consume you. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. He says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is one of those passages that I think we're always tempted to read and think that must apply to somebody else, not to me. I was thinking about that when I read that. We tend to think... You know, when we read the desire to be rich, we think like Jeff Bezos rich. But we need to step back and remember, like, we are rich. We have a lot of money. And we love our comfort in America, do we not? We love to be comfortable. It's true. I mean, let's just be honest. We need to be really careful about just dismissing passages like this and automatically assuming, well, that's not me. No, no, no. Let the Word of God examine your heart because it's good for you. God's Word is meant for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. 
Paul goes on to say, I want to read you verses 17 to 19 of 1 Timothy 6. He says this, and this, he says, as for the rich in this present age, who is that? Us, all right? So here he's speaking to us right now, okay? Paul is speaking to every single one of us in this room. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, so it's better to be rich in good works than to have a big bank account, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Brothers and sisters, we are not living for this world and for accumulation of things in this world. Our true life is in the new heavens and the new earth to come with a treasure that will never fade away. The way that you keep from becoming ensnared by materialism is pretty easy. Well, it's an easy concept, not so easy to put into practice. You know what it is? Paul just told us. Be generous. Be rich in good works. Be ready to share. Juan Sanchez is a pastor and uh, author. He says, everything, listen to this quote. This is, listen carefully to this because this is a challenging one. Everything that God provides above and beyond our needs is meant to be reinvested in the work of the heavenly kingdom. Everything that God provides above and beyond our needs is meant to be reinvested in the work of the heavenly kingdom. Do you view your bank account that way? If you aren't wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus in your finances, let me encourage you this morning to repent by zealously committing to give. That word zealous means eagerly, like a dog on a bone. Like, I just can't wait. I'm so excited to do this. The only way you're going to do that is if you've had a heart change. You can't just go through the motions of zealously giving, right? Like, you're just going to give begrudgingly if you don't understand just how much you've been given by Christ. And just how much, like, just how incredible the riches are that await us in glory. Like, if we truly understand that, then it's a no-brainer to give generously. Storing up treasure in heaven. Like, I can't wait to give more. And you think, well, I wonder if there's any examples in the Bible of that. Well, I'm glad that you asked. One of my favorites is in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4. I'm always moved by Paul's testimony about this church in Macedonia. Listen to what he says about this church. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So they were taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem that was experiencing a famine and they were in desperate need. And this church in Macedonia, who is dirt poor, Paul says, he says, quote, their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity and they begged to take part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they begged that they could give even above and beyond their means. That's what zealous giving looks like. That's what Scripture calls us to as Christians. 
That is not a lukewarm faith there in the church in Macedonia, is it? It's not a lukewarm faith. If you don't want to be ensnared by wealth, then give generously. This is one investment that will never let you down. It's one stock that is never, ever going to crash. It's just going to infinitely multiply. Nothing given for the kingdom of God is ever a waste, ever. May we be white hot in our generosity. Because the reality is that too many souls are perishing around us for us to squander our money on ourselves, on self-indulgence. If you are a member of Pillar DC, I'll remind you that you've covenanted to do that, to regularly and sacrificially give to the work of ministry through your regular tithes and offerings. So I'll ask you, are you doing that? Is your giving consistent? Is it sacrificial? Is it zealous like we see here at the church in Macedonia? There's all, you also have another opportunity next Sunday, like I talked about earlier, to apply this by giving above and beyond our tithes and offerings to the mission's offerings so that we can support the work of reaching Icelanders and of reaching unreached peoples in Southeast Asia by giving to Logan and Carla Douglas and to Global Serve International. I want to urge us all to really prayerfully consider how does God want us to change our giving habits? There are so many other applications we could make, but I'll just ask a couple more questions. Uh, if, if the way that we spend our money reflects what we're devoted to, then so does the way that we spend our time. So I'll ask you, where is your time going? Have you been lukewarm in serving others? It's striking to me, I was thinking about this earlier this week, how Jesus always defaulted towards serving others. You notice that? Jesus was always serving other people, and then once the needs of everyone around him had been met, then if there was time left over, he would take time for himself. And even when he took time for himself, he didn't use that time to go be self-indulgent and look to the pleasures of this world. He went to go be alone with the Father. And it was... It just hit me this morning how we flip that backwards, don't we? We spend our time on ourselves, and then if there's any time left over, we'll give it to other people. That's how we tend to operate in our flesh. That's backwards. What would it look like for us to prioritize giving our time to God and to others and then using what's left over for ourselves? What would that look like in your life? I I can't tell you. That's between you and the Lord, but... I would challenge you to think about that this week. Go take a look at your calendar. Go look back this past Monday to Saturday. Where was your time invested? What are you prioritizing? Maybe it might look like if you're going to prioritize giving your time to God and others, it might look like serving in the church. We need nursery uh, child care workers. That's a dying to self for some more than others, I understand. But It's an incredible way to selflessly serve, and it's a need. Of all places and times, we should be eager to give to others when we're gathered to worship the one who gave everything for us, right? Or you could serve your family, prioritize serving your family. Men, you can serve your family by leading your family in worship 
and devotions. Yes, it might take some time and it might be out of your comfort zone, but God has entrusted you with that responsibility. You'll give an account one day for how you have spiritually shepherded your family. Mothers, it looks like taking seriously the great call to disciple your children. I mean, what an opportunity that you have to spend so much time with them, to teach them about Jesus, to pray for them. Prioritizing serving Jesus and the Lord with our time also looks like prioritizing sharing the gospel. God's aim is that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would worship Him. So how much of your time is given towards that end? Like, does, if we were to look back at the last several weeks in your life, would we be able to tell that that's a priority in your life? Would you be guilty as charged if that was submitted as evidence in a court of law, that you care a lot about the Great Commission? Could we tell? This Christmas season, the Christmas season of all times ought to be focused on Jesus' mission rather than materialism. But we also flip that backwards. So, yes, have fun with your family. Eat good food. But make the fame of Jesus' name your priority this season. <clears throat> One of, just to share an example with you, I'm not saying that I'm amazing at this or that I have it all figured out, uh, but we are trying and striving as a family to uh, you know, set an example of this. So one of the things that we're planning on doing is we're going to make cookies for all of our neighbors, and we're going to write just a short little simple card with a gospel tract, and we're going to go to the neighbors on our street and just hand those out to our neighbors. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I know that they're going to have the gospel put into their hands and that there might be an opportunity for a conversation down the road. And it's just one little way that we can try to step outside of our comfort zones and share the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection with a world that desperately needs to hear it. So I don't know what that looks like for you. I mean, you're probably going to go home for the holidays or on the holidays, and you're going to see people that you and your family that uh, either are not believers or maybe they're lukewarm Christians. And... You've got an opportunity this Christmas season to share the gospel with them. So make time for it. Prioritize it. Let me urge you to go home and reflect upon where your money and your time are going. We all ought to be asking ourselves how we could better serve the Lord Jesus because He's worthy of our best. He is. He is worthy of white-hot worship, not lukewarm faith. Right? Is He not, church? Amen? If you still aren't convinced, look at the last two verses. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That that verse 20 there is, is what a lot of people refer to as a coffee cup verse. You see it on coffee cups all the time, and it's commonly misunderstood. It's not primarily an evangelistic appeal. It's primarily a call to the church. I mean, look, think about the picture here. This is actually a, uh, a tragic picture. This is Jesus standing outside the door of his church and saying, Will you let me back in? Because I'm not even there anymore. You guys have completely missed the mark. You're going through the forms of worship, and I'm not anywhere in your midst. Whatever you're doing, it's not about me. It's about something else. But yet, and yet he's graciously saying, if any one of just one 
hears my voice, opens the door, which means recognizing your spiritual poverty, repenting of lukewarm faith, and receiving his invitation. If just one repents, I will come in and I will dine with him. That's, that's a, uh, that, that language of dining together with Jesus or eating with him is symbolic of intimate fellowship. So what Jesus is promising here is to those who repent of lukewarm Christianity, we will have the privilege of eternal fellowship, intimate fellowship with him forever and ever. And not only do, does Jesus promise intimate fellowship with him, but in verse 21 he promises that we will share in all that belongs to him, including his reign. He says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. By faith in Jesus, we're united to him, which means that we share in everything that is his. Jesus invites the self-reliant to trade away all the things that we put before him so that we can sit with him on his throne, to trade away the perishing riches of the world so that we can have eternal riches in union with him. 